good as some movies are, sometimes the story behind the making of them is more interesting than the film itself. Shakespeare in Love won the Oscar for Best Picture at the 1999 Academy Awards, but the idea for the film came to writer Mark Norman some 10 years earlier. With a few film credits to his name, none of which had been particularly successful, Norman was stuck for new material. That is, until his sons suggested a story about the youthful days of William Shakespeare. Knocking the idea around for a while, Norman settled on a plot about the bard fighting writer's block as he struggled to pen his new play, Romeo and Juliet. Norman then approached producer-director Ed Svick, who had himself secured great success with the TV series 30-something, before going on to feature films. When Norman approached him, Svick was preparing to direct an American Civil War epic, Glory. While Svick liked Norman's idea, he didn't like Norman's script. So, Svick did what any good producer would do. He got in a new writer. And that one stroke was the masterstroke that set the story on the road to its success. Svick hired in the Czech-born English playwright Tom Stoppard. I have a wonderful new play. Put them back in. Oh, it's a comedy. Cut off his nose. It's a new comedy by William Shakespeare. And his ears. And his share. We will be partners, Mr. Pennyman. Partners? It's a crowd tickler. Mistaken identities, shipwreck, pirate king, a bit with a dog, and love triumphant. I think I've seen it. I didn't like it. But this time it is by Shakespeare. What's it called? Romeo and Ethel, the pirate's daughter. Good title. Stoppard was a three-time Tony Award-winning playwright who, way back in 1966, when he was just 29, had penned a deliciously clever and even more successful play, Rosencrantz and Guildenstern Are Dead. Stoppard was also an experienced screenwriter, having co-written Terry Gilliam's maddening masterpiece, Brazil, as well as adapting for Steven Spielberg, J.G. Ballard's semi-autobiographical novel, Empire of the Sun. Most recently, Stoppard's own adaptation of Rosencrantz and Guildenstern Are Dead had won the Golden Bear at the 1989 Berlin Film Festival. Rosencrantz and Guildenstern operates a conceit not wholly dissimilar to the one Norman's script had been reaching for but had not quite fully taken control of. Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are two minor characters in Shakespeare's Hamlet, but in Stoppard's play, it is the Danish prince who is the minor character, in a play about two incredibly confused men caught up in events that are happening offstage. What is more, those offstage events are more important than what's happening on stage. Which, if you think about it, is sometimes a little bit like the lives so many of us lead. Just as characters are never aware that they are in a play, we think we know the plots to our own lives. Anyway, Stoppard's characters think that what they are doing is real, but because we frame their actions within the context of Shakespeare's play, we know it's all make-believe. So, Stoppard's stage within a stage gives us absurd farce, tragic comedy, existentialist dread, and postmodern intertextuality all rolled into one. And comparing and contrasting Norman's script to Stoppard's rewrite, you can see that the lion's share of the credit must go to Stoppard. Romeo and Ethel, the pirate's daughter. 
Yes, I know, I know. What is the story? Well, there's this pirate. In truth, I've not written a word. Romeo. Romeo is Italian. Always in and out of love. Yes, that's good. I'm clearly means. Ethel. Do you think? The daughter of his enemy. The daughter of his enemy. His best friend is killed in a duel by Ethel's brother. Or something. His name is Mercutio. Mercutio. Good name. But writing was just the beginning. In the meantime, Ed Svick's picture, Glory, had won three Oscars at the 1989 Academy Awards. And so, with Stoppard's rewrite, he now had another hot property ready to go into production. Doubling up as the film's producer and director, Zwick approached Universal Studios, who agreed to finance the picture on condition that Zwick landed a few big stars. For the female lead, Zwick went straight to Julia Roberts, who had exploded with Pretty Woman. She instantly said yes, and Universal Studios opened their checkbooks and started paying for the construction of sets in England's Pinewood Studios. But there was a snag. Roberts had in her contract a clause that stipulated casting approval, and for the role of Shakespeare, Roberts wanted Daniel Day-Lewis. Day-Lewis was approached, but barely even considered the script before saying no. The reason? He was already deep in preparation for In the Name of the Father, Jim Sheridan's film about the wrongful conviction of the Guildford Four. It is said that Roberts approached Day-Lewis directly, but the gentleman was not for turning, so Without her preferred romantic lead, Roberts walked away, and in October 1992, Universal Studios pulled the plug. Mr. Funnyman, allow me to explain about the theatre business. The natural condition is one of insurmountable obstacles on the road to imminent disaster. So what do we do? Nothing. Strangely enough, it all turns out well. How? I don't know. It's a mystery. Without a star, Svick had a hard time luring other studios to step in. The pickup fee was simply too much, and so the vast numbers of costumes and the almost completed sets in Pinewood were scrapped. But Svick wasn't prepared to completely wipe the picture from his slate, and a number of years later he approached Miramax, the independent distribution company run by the Weinstein brothers, Bob and Harvey. They were on a phenomenal winning streak, having produced Quentin Tarantino's Pulp Fiction and Antin Minghella's nine-time Oscar-winning The English Patient. Miramax agreed to pick up the project, but there was a snag. They didn't think that Ed Svick was the right director. Instead, the Weinsteins wanted English theatre and television director John Madden, with whom they had already worked on a low-budget picture about Queen Victoria called Mrs Brown, starring Judi Dench. Not coincidentally, the film had been financed by BBC Television, and the Weinsteins were very impressed by the way Madden had worked the light drama and comedy and the tight budget, and so they were convinced, with their help, that Madden could do the same magic with the Shakespeare script. Attention, please! Gentlemen, thank you! You are welcome. Who's that? Nobody's the author. We are about to embark on a great voyage. It is customary to make a little speech on the first day. It does no harm. Authors like it. You want to know what parts you are to receive? All will be settled as we go. I'll do it. Now, listen to me, you dregs. 
Actors are ten a penny. And I, Hugh Fenneman, hold your nuts in my hand. By this stage, Harvey Weinstein was already casting. But he did not go back to Julia Roberts. He didn't want to be tied into the casting approval of a movie star. Instead, he gave the script to all the Hollywood agencies. Yet oddly, many actresses, Nicole Kidman, Meg Ryan and Kate Winslet, all said no. Which was fine, because Weinstein had already set his sights on Winona Ryder. That was until one afternoon, Gwyneth Paltrow, then only a rising actress, dropped by Ryder's office and happened to see the Shakespeare script lying on a coffee table. Asking to read it, by the time she had finished it, Paltrow was already lobbying hard for the role of Viola. May I begin, sir? Your name? Thomas Kent. I, I would like to do a speech by a writer who commands the heart of every player. What light is light if Sylvia be not seen? What joy is joy if Sylvia be not by? Unless it be to think that she is by and feed upon the shadow of perfection. Meanwhile, Madden filled out the remainder of the cast with predominantly English actors from television and the stage. By all accounts, the shooting of the film went smoothly, but it was only in the post-production phase that it became apparent that the magic of Stoppard's script had not been fully transferred to the screen. Test audiences did not respond as hoped, and so Weinstein did what any good producer would do. He reconvened the cast and crew for considerable rewrites and reshoots. However, that caused a major headache because by then, Weinstein was already bankrolling Antony Minghella's next picture, the talented Mr. Ripley, who had just happened to star Gwyneth Paltrow. Weinstein had to reschedule the shooting of that film to shoot the new scenes for Shakespeare. Still, things weren't quite gelling. The problem was the ending, and no one knew how to give that the right lift. That is, until, wouldn't you know it, Tom Stoppard came up with a solution. Viola tells Shakespeare that she has no choice but to leave England. But all will not be lost because she is sure that in their parting, Shakespeare will be inspired to write yet another play. A voyage to a new world. The storm, all are lost. She lands on a vast and empty shore. She is brought to the Duke. Orsino. Orsino? Good name. But fearful of her virtue. She comes to him dressed as a boy. And thus is unable to declare her love. But all ends well. How does it? I don't know. It's a mystery. Shakespeare in Love is a film I find unusually resistible. It is enjoyable, with sparkling dialogue, great comedic moments, and good chemistry between the leads. Yet, despite those virtues, there are several weaknesses. It takes too long to gain momentum, the pacing is uneven, and there are simply too many montage sequences. However, Stephen Warbeck's score, for which he received one of the film's seven Oscars, 
is sprightly and heightens the romance. But visually, there was no need for it to be filmed in widescreen. Director John Madden and cinematographer Richard Greatrex simply do not use the extra width to any great advantage. Despite the brilliant production values, Martin Childs and Jill Quartier's art direction and Sandy Powell's costume design, it feels more like a TV film, just like Madden's previous picture, Mrs. Brown. 